Good morning. My name is Jared Stichter, and I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here at Highland. If you have your Bibles, I'd like to ask you to open to Psalm 113. Let's ask God to guide our service here this morning. God, as we open our Bibles and as we get ready to continue in our worship, Lord, um, great is your faithfulness. And um, Lord, we are so excited to be able to not only gather together, but gather together under you, under, under the name of the church with a capital C. And uh, God, as we think about so many people from all around the globe who are gathering together uh, in fellowship uh, and, and to have um, community, not with each other uh, only, but with you as well. And so God, I ask that you guide our time here today, Lord, that you would give me the words that you would have uh, Lord, for this service, and Lord, that you would allow um, your name to be made great, and that um, we will leave here um, with this time as a springboard into continually praising your name and uh, living our lives for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever noticed when we talk about God, when we, when we, we have these conversations about God, we kind of speak in like two different ways. We have analogies of God, you know, God is kind of like this, or God's like that, or, or we speak about what God has done. There seems to be the, the two common themes of talking about God, and the psalm we're going to be in today actually has both of those. It starts with, with talking about God as analogy, but then also going into what God has done. Psalm 113 is, is one of six psalms referred to as the Egyptian Hallel, and Hallel is a Hebrew word which simply means praise. And the reason why it's called the Egyptian Hallels is because it has such great weight when it came to the Hebrews when they were in, in the land of Egypt. And starting with the second psalm in the Hallels, the Egyptian Hallels, it moves forward from there. And so that's why um, those are called the Egyptian Hallels. It's Psalm 113 through 118. And um, this custom goes back a really long ways. In fact, some scholars would say that these six psalms were the, the psalms that would have been sung along um, with a few other things at the Passover meal, uh, even the night that Jesus had his Passover meal with his disciples. And so it's very likely that this, along with the other five, were songs that would have been sung before and after dinner. Uh, the night that Jesus was uh, with his disciples, betrayed, arrested, and inevitably uh, murdered. Uh, let's read today's text. It says, Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. Psalm 113 is comprised of three different stanzas, all right? So we're familiar with musical terms, right? Chorus, pre-chorus, bridge, right? And we have stanzas, okay? So three parts of a song. Now, these three stanzas all have a main point. And so out of Psalm 113 specifically, we can take three kind of 
points from it because there's three stanzas. And so the first logical step would be to look at stanza number one. So that's three verses. So that's praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise, the ri- uh, praise from the rising of the sun to its setting. And the name of the Lord is to be praised. Do we see a theme? Praise the name of the Lord, right? All right. Um, so what's the name of the Lord? That's probably a good place uh, to begin. In Exodus 3.14, we see that his name is written down as four consonants. Um, this is referred to as the tetragrammaton, which is a fancy way of saying four letters, all right? And, and so the, these are four Hebrew letters being Yod, He, Wa, He. In English, we would say Y-H-W-H. Now that's, that doesn't help us much. We like vowels in English, right? Like we need some vowels. I like to buy a vowel here, right? And so we have to understand that they weren't trying to make things complicated. You see, the Hebrews just had a, had a little thing. And it's actually a, kind of a big thing. And that is the fact that they were so afraid that this name would be mispronounced. They didn't put any vowel point, pointation on it. The Hebrew language is kind of weird. You use dots and dashes. and You see here that they purposely left it out. <laughs> they were quite content with yad, hey, wa, hey. They didn't want people to mispronounce and somehow show disrespect to the name of God. And so in all actuality, in terms of how it was pronounced back then, we actually don't know. But scholars have have worked hard and and they've studied and they've researched. And so today in English, we have an A and an E inserted. So we have the word Yahweh, the name of God, Yahweh. And if you look at what this word is, means we learn a lot about this God. And I don't want to get too, too caught up in the details about, you know, is, is A and E the right vowels to have? That, that's kind of a secondary issue. Maybe the main um, emphasis should be how should we understand the name of God to be? So depending on a few details, between looking at Hebrew language, which is really fun and exciting, and comparing other parts of Scripture, it's safe to believe that this Yahweh means I am or I will be. Or even perhaps he who causes to be. And this is pretty amazing when you think about it. It's talking about this God that created everything. This God that just spoke. And it was light, plants, animals. Set these things into motion. This God that is so big and so huge, we can't possibly fathom who this God is. And yet, we'll see, he makes himself known. And you're making, maybe you're making light of, uh, you know, no big deal about this whole idea of a name. But, but think about it. Names mean something. In fact, I'm a little bit of an etymology nerd. I kind of like, like what names mean. And so I started researching this in college. And I thought, I'm going to start with my name. Here we go. Jared. Jared, a nice Hebrew name. All right? Sixth descendant of Adam, lived 146 years in the scriptures, and he was the father of Enoch. This name must mean something awesome. It means to descend. <laughs> Basically, like to fall down. This is a terrible name. All right. So, so that's a loose term, loose term. All right, loose term. All right. So 
My last name, Stichter. Yes, I finally said it, so now everyone, Stichter. It's really hard to pronounce. It's German. Why? I don't know. Okay, so I'm going to make up for it here, right? Jared to descend. Stichter, founder or like to establish something. I thought it'd be like, like stud muffin, like super smart. Nope, it doesn't mean anything like that. It means, it means like found and descend. That's silly, I know. But names mean something. In fact, there's times in life when we really don't want somebody to know our name. Oh, he just got real. All right. And there's times in life, we're going to get more real, when we really want someone to know our name. Names mean something. You see, names are not just words put together. When you know someone's name or when someone knows your name, it discloses this intimate thing, this vulnerability that comes with this idea of knowing names. It's not just random facts. And when we understand that this God has made his name known, that should blow our minds. This God who has done all these amazing things and we, we, he just creates the whole universe and all of a sudden he just is just there and all like, oh my gosh, and you just read all these things in scripture or you just watch a sunset and you're like, what is going on? And you see this amazing God that seems so far at times, you realize he's actually quite close and he makes his name known. He reveals his name and there's this intimacy that's shared you see, names are not just words. And that's just the same. It's no different with God. And the name, this name, Yahweh, should be praised always at all times, as the stanza says. All right, let's keep going. Stanza number two, verses four to six. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? Who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? David has now gone from declaring that the servant should praise the name of God to actually declaring uh, and, and praising the name of God. He himself is praising the Lord. And I can't, I can't help but not think about the Tower of Babel here. If you remember in Genesis 11, these people got together and they wanted to build a tower to the heavens to make a name for themselves. And it says that God came from far away to look to see what they were doing. And obviously it didn't, it didn't end so well for them, but it's this point of God being far away, coming close to see what's going on. You know, I referenced it earlier, but consider the most amazing created things we've seen. Think about, I woke up a little early this morning and I got to watch the, sun, the sunrise. Think about your favorite sunset. Think about like the most crazy, intricate like, like animals, like the duck-billed platypus or something. Like, like think about these incredible, amazing tall trees we find all over at state parks and, and they're so intricately designed. And we have a God that puts this all into motion. And the same God that is so far away, the same God that is just so above the heavens and the earth, and yet sometimes we sit in these seats and we feel like, I don't even know if he's close right now. 
He's designed these things with purpose and intention. Scripture says that creation actually points us to the creator. And as God that's so far away is continually making himself close. See, God's really big, but he's actually not that far away. And we're getting closer and closer to the ultimate way that he has revealed himself. And the reality is, is being in 2017, we have a privilege that King David didn't have in Psalm 113. See, we can look back and see this man, Jesus, that was fully God, eternal, was there from there, 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 kept going, who took on flesh and became man. This amazingly huge, far away, distant God actually said, no, I'm going to go dwell where they're at. And this Jesus became man. And it's not going to be on the screen, but Philippians 2 does a really good job of reminding us of this God that became man. This God that's so far and high above the heavens, who's so great, humbling himself. Philippians 2, 6 through 8 says this. Who though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The greatest example of our God, who's so big and so amazing, is found in this baby, Jesus who grew up, lived a perfect life. He taught us how to be dependent on the Father, dependent on prayer, Holy Spirit-led, who lived a, a human life, who died a human death. But for those of us in Christ, we understand he resurrected, and not even death beats it, that we now have hope of eternal life solely through Jesus. So he says, the Lord is high above all nations. He's so far away in his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? And the answer is nobody. Nobody else is like this God. And yet he's made himself known. Now, this would be a good spot to stop the sermon, right? We've got a little Old Testament, a little New Testament. We've talked about Jesus. Okay, we're good. But the stanza continues. You see, the song continues. We have a third stanza. We have a third part of the psalm. Verses 7 and 9. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. And this is where we have an amazing Old Testament author and David and another amazing Old Testament story and they come together. You see at first glance verses 7 and 8 look like not much more than song lyrics out of psalm and it's like wow this is encouraging it's great until we understand the circumstances it's written in. See verse 9 doesn't seem so kind of out of nowhere once you understand verses 7 and 8. Remember, the first stanza encourages the servant of the Lord to praise God's name always, at all times, period. In the second, revealing who God is, that God is exalted over the nations, his glory is being above the heavens. There is no one like him, and he is enthroned on high, and he, but he stoops down to look 
at the heavens and the earth. You see, verses 7 and 8 are borrowed lyrics. They're found somewhere else. In order to see where, we have to look at a woman named Hannah. Hannah was married to a man named Elkanah. And Elkanah was a man. He had two wives. We're not going to get into why that was the thing in the Old Testament, but he had a wife, Hannah, and he had a wife, Peninnah. Peninnah was able to have children, but Hannah was not. And Peninnah wasn't very nice about it. In fact, she, she made uh, Hannah's life pretty miserable for years. And there were times when Hannah would weep. She wouldn't eat. And Scripture says that she had a sad heart. And Elkanah, being her husband, would try to comfort her. He would say things like, why do you weep? Why aren't you eating? He'd ask her why her heart was sad. And like every good husband, he would say bonehead husband things like, isn't being married to me enough? I had, to sec- I had to read it, but it's there in Scripture. He literally asked her, isn't married, being married to me give you as much joy as like having ten children? And, you know, any married woman in here would tell you, yes, my husband definitely is like having ten children. Um, <laughs> it's true. I'll own that one. Um, I'm guilty as well. And... <laughs> What I love about that part of Scripture is it shows you that these people are just people. You have a man who's trying to comfort his wife who puts his foot in his mouth. I love it. But it also shows that Hannah's pain is real. This real woman had real pain. She would call out to God. He made, or she made promises to God. She'd said things like, God, if you would give me a child, if you give me a son, I'll give him back to you. I'll lend him back to you. She was praying to herself, and she was such a mess that Eli, the high priest, one day walked up to her and told her she needs to lay off the wine. He thought she was drunk. Heartbroken, Hannah let Eli know that she, she wasn't drinking any wine or beer that day and that she would not be regarded as a worthless woman because she was praying out of the anxiety of her heart. And she would go on to say that she was longing for Yahweh to hear her cry. And sometime later, Scripture tells us that they would go to uh, the house of the Lord and they would, they would worship there, and then it said that they went back home and that the Lord remembered Hannah and she became pregnant. And um, she weaned the child, she gave birth to a son, weaned him for two to three years and took him back to the temple and her son Samuel was then lent back to God. And this is found in 1 Samuel 1. And then we see in 1 Samuel 2, um, Hannah is now praying to God. It's referred to as Hannah's song and really it's just a long, beautiful prayer, which is why it's referred to as a song. Uh, You read things like this. My heart exalts in the Lord. Now chapter 1, it says her heart was sad. Chapter 2 says, her heart now exalts in the Lord. She said things like, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. And you heard things like, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He rises up the poor from the dust, and he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. And on them he has set the world. That last one should sound a little familiar. 
It's what David declares in verses 7 and 8. And actually you see uh, David declaring uh, what Hannah had already declared. And if you read far enough in the book, you get to Luke 1 and you realize a, a young girl named Mary prays some of the same kind of things for her son, Jesus. And you have these amazing bookends in Scripture. It's like the Old and New Testament really belong together. It's, it's really amazing. And you see this, how, how this thread throughout Scripture. And Hannah sees her situation and Samuel representing what God is going to do one day in Israel. And she trusts God with her innermost and most hurtful situation. She trusts that God will bring forth a child, and when he does, she will give the child back to him. And now I want to I take a moment and speak to a couple things. One, I, I know it's Mother's Day, and I know this isn't a traditional Mother's Day sermon, and it's not intended to be. I, I know that some in this room, whether they're here or, or maybe some people who aren't here today, can feel Hannah's pain whether it's a desire for children who've yet to come or feeling like God has forgotten or isn't listening. And when others do not understand while it hurts so bad, they say foolish things. Or maybe another pain of today is this may be the first Mother's Day without mom or a child relationships aren't going well. There's been a loss of a child. I want to bring us back to the first two stanzas because I think they speak to these things. Uh, The first one, encouraging the servants of the Lord to praise God's name all the time, always, period. And the second, revealing who God is, exalted over the nations, his glory being above the heavens. There is nobody like him. He is enthroned on high, but he stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth. This God that is above all stoops down to the heavens and the earth. And I realize for some of us in this room, it it might be going through your head. It's easy for you to say, you're the man with the Bible on a stage. I wasn't always the man with the Bible on stage. And in fact, there was, a, there was a nice season in life where my wife and I really wrestled with this idea of Mother's and Father's Day. Growing up without a dad, Father's Day was really, really hard. And then longing to be a dad, not being able to have biological children were really hard. It was really hard. And so you read things like Psalm 113 where it says, give him praise always, at all times, period. This is who God is. He reaches down. (laughs) He looks down at the heavens and the earth. He meets you where you're at. And then he delivers. Now for my wife and I, adoption's our story. Praise God. Not every person will have our story. We would read scripture and say, why don't we have Hannah's story? Have faith, have babies. That's not our story. And if God decides to change our story, amen. But the reality is, is that the DNA of our response is the same. Whether today's a celebration day or a difficult day, praise the name of the Lord always. We have a God who is above all the nations, who looks down at the heavens and the earth. 
but today is Mother's Day as well. So for the mamas in the room, may I encourage you to follow Hannah's example. God has given you the gift of motherhood. Use it well. Trust God with your children and trust your children to God. Allow him to be Lord of your home and raise your children to love him. But that begins with modeling it first at home. For those, in the, for those of us in the room who, who maybe aren't biological mothers or fathers for that matter, because I'll speak to everyone, we have this amazing gift of being able to pour into the next generation to be surrogate parents. Um, I tell you what, my, uh, my, my high school youth pastor gave me money for my first, my, my, my date, my first date with my now wife. Uh, he, he taught me shaving tips on a mission trip to southeastern Kentucky, and, and I knew, that, and he did a pretty good job too. Um, um, he, he poured into me. He was like a dad, and he still is. I had the privilege of serving under him for my first six years of being a pastor back home, and it was, it's a true gift. Um, but he's not my biological dad. But he saw his role in pouring in my life, and it was amazing. And the truth is there's a lot of women in student ministry back home when I was growing up that served as surrogate moms and grandmas. And there's a lot to say about that. And so we have the privilege as the body of Christ to pour into our children, our grandchildren, nieces and nephews, but also um, the next generation inside the church. And it's really amazing. As we, as we come to a, a con- conclusion here, we actually see in the last verse of 1 Samuel, it says that Samuel worshipped God in the house of the Lord when she presented him. Now, this kid's two or three years old. My two-and-a-half-year-old daughter likes to run in the church, not necessarily worship in the church all the time. But it says that he worshipped. And the reality is I think we can connect some dots that Samuel learned from his mom how to worship the Lord. I can't prove that. But if you connect some of the dots, we see that he learned from the people who taught him. And you saw a woman who was faithful before Samuel and after Samuel's arrival. I think we can all draw from that. And ultimately, motherhood does not define you. Your most important relationship is not with your child or your children. It's with this God whose name is to be praised um, at all times. Our most important relationship is with our God.